Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. Today I'm joined by my colleagues Kaylee Foran and Adam Wainwright. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hi there. Hi. Um, so we thought before we sign off for the Christmas break, we'd take a quick look forward to 2020 and try and work out what the election result might mean for the education sector. So, nothing, nothing too big to cover there. Yeah, <laughs> just a little, just a little something. Um, so, let's let's start with what we do know. Twenty uh, twenty. What do what do we know that we can expect, Kaylee? Um, so, I think the thing we probably know most instinctively is that um, education is going to be relatively low on the political agenda. Actually, um, with Brexit. Yeah. Um, being what it is and the deadline being quite close um, and the government seeming to be quite keen on getting Brexit done, as it were. They seem to be quite keen on no extensions and so it seems like, especially in the next few months, we're going to be dealing primarily with Brexit and the any mm. implications of leaving the EU. So education sector reform is going to feel low, um, mm. like, like a low priority option and um, it's also probably going to feel like if they do do anything it's going to feel more like fiddling around the edges than kind of visionary sector change Um, so I'd say that's probably the the biggest the biggest thing Mm -hmm. Um, but beyond that I think we can expect to see a continuation of a lot of what we've seen so far Mm -hmm. Um, this year curriculum is going to be the focus because of the new Ofsted framework. And so we know that a lot of school leaders are going to be focused on that within their schools. Um, And a lot of the other stuff is just sort of extra for Mm -hmm. them at the moment. Um, We know that the outstanding exemption um, will go. That that means that schools who are currently rated outstanding by Ofsted um, are exempt Mm -hmm. from routine inspection in most circumstances, and the government is proposing to get rid Mm -hmm. of this exemption, um, and that that will probably go ahead. They're going to consult on exactly how to do it, but there hasn't been any indication that they're going to back away from that pledge. Um, And that seems to make a lot of sense given that right now the outstanding exemption is is based on a risk assessment Mm. process um, that given the new framework isn't really fit for purpose anymore. So so that's probably going to be a big change in the sector coming up next year. Okay. And so what I thought we might do and um we will obviously bring more ideas as as we go is have a little look at what was in the conservative party uh, manifesto uh what's been kind of committed to uh for the for the near term and have a think about about how some of those might things might happen and any any kind of issues um that, that might need to be considered so obviously we know there's been some positive noises about funding uh, from the Conservative Party. So there's a commitment to increase school funding by 14 billion, with those areas historically underfunded receiving the greatest increase. This is the wording of the of the manifesto document. Um, and then this commitment to secondary school pupils receiving a minimum of £5,000 funding and primary pupils a minimum of £4,000 funding 
that will be in 21-22. So this kind of levelling up of, of every child having, having um, a sort of baseline of the same amount of funding um, and a funding boost for education in the 16 to 19 year olds, including further education, sixth form colleges, um, and, and an emphasis on, on skills. Um, okay. So uh, you could say on the face of it, more, more money for the sector there, although we know from kind of analysis pre the election that actually this, what this means in real terms is a sort of reversal of the cuts. Do you think that would be fair to say? And that really you're just bringing spending back in line with what it was in 2009-10. Um, with some additional costs to the sector around around pay pay and pensions in in the background there, and uh, the levelling up aspect, we've got this sort of um, uh, m more money going to these places that have been traditionally underfunded. But then, what does that mean for inner city kind of areas? Or sort of any thoughts on on funding from you guys? Yeah, I think I, I think most school leaders would be happy to hear that any additional funding mm. yeah. is is coming. Um, and even if all it's all it's doing is getting us back up to mm. kind of a, a twenty nine ten level in in real terms, that's still an improvement on the situation we're in now. Uh, so I guess there's that to be thankful for. Mm. Um, yeah, I think one of it's the funding need is quite acute mm. uh, in the sector at the moment. And we know that there's, you know, when you layer in the issues with the way that pupils with special educational needs and disabilities um, are funded and how their needs are provided for and funded within schools, that's an additional layer yeah. of complexity. We know that the pupil premium grant kind of goes some way towards helping schools target funding at pupils who are disadvantaged, but it doesn't quite go all the way there often, um, given mm. how sparse other funding is. Um, so I guess it'll be interesting to see how the, how the whole picture, the whole funding patchwork shakes out. Yeah, um, I guess the other thing is that we're in what feels like a very long rollout of the national funding formula mm, um, yes. now yeah. that we know that it's a conservative majority and we expect that to sort of continue along the timeline that it's always been working towards like seeing how this and again like the way in which the funding will break down constituency by constituency and school by school like it's a really hard one to say this is how this will affect you know schools as yeah. a broad group yeah. because I think just school to school like there's a bit of a wait and see for exactly how much better or worse off they're going to be compared to you know not just hypothetical plans during the election but you know the last few years anyway um i think yeah there's some worry about how this is gonna help more disadvantaged communities um we know that the national funding formula was brought in to readdress some of the sort of what was seen as imbalance in terms of like inner city schools getting mm. more funding but obviously that means that they're going to be seeing less going forward and yeah as sort of Caroline's already spoken to the context that's needed around what 14 billion will actually get you, which is, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, not to be too doom and gloom about it because, you know, if there's one thing we know that schools are very good at, it's using their budgets to, mm. you know, the best of their ability. So um, it's not like all hope is lost, but it's definitely a difficult one to say exactly what this is going to look like. Um, I mean, I think there's a, 
a very real issue as well about the other areas of policy and um, service provision because I think a lot of the time um, you know school budgets are tight for providing education and the associated things to pupils but there's this very real challenge of where other bits of of, of welfare and support are not yeah. there yeah. locally uh, the school is the one um, touch point for those families yeah and it and ends up providing so much more um to make up for the things that have that have fallen away um after a kind of prolonged period of, of cuts in public service mm. so uh i i guess that there is a, there is an element here about about w- what will be happening in, in some of the of those other um other services as as well um but as you as you say more more funding um still probably more needed and i'm sure that's a conversation um that that campaigners will be continuing to have with with government i think that's probably a a prediction for the for the year ahead um Mm. as as well okay so we'll move on to the next uh section of the the manifesto which talks about improved discipline and standards in the classroom um so uh a kind of nod to uh, performance in in terms of rising in the international uh, league tables that measure literacy so the the PISA results that were out a few weeks back uh, and and a commitment to make sure standards keep rising Um, that's why every school including schools rated as outstanding will receive regular checks so that was what we talked about a little bit before there about the outstanding exemption um, being being removed um, and then this investment of ten million pounds in the national behaviour hubs uh, to ensure um, that, that, that schools can can have access to um, uh, good good training and and, and, and support to have um, an excellent behaviour culture and kind of work with other other schools. Um, so any any thoughts on on that? So this is, I think I'm right in thinking this is something that was also announced pre-election. This is the mm. £10 pound yeah. behaviour hub thing, specifically. Mm. Um, so that's due to start in September 2020. He says, definitely not reading yeah. this off the screen. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, one of the things that sort of jumped out from that is, is about peer support and schools helping schools, creating sort of mm. like lead uh, mm. behaviour schools who will then go in sort of like the teaching school model but mm. for behaviour rolled out maths hubs and things yeah. Yeah. so I mean like that makes sense I mean like that's fairly in line with what I guess we've seen over the last few years in terms of the government wanting to encourage mm. uh, practice to be shared between schools and learning from each other rather than it being like a top down diktat so and I mean you know that does tend to work well um mm it's hard to say how exactly that's going to roll out and obviously you know all mm. contexts are different but i think the sort of underlying like fundamental basis of it being that it's going to be about peer support and networks being set up to share is yeah. probably a good idea yeah it's also been it's also been nice to see that there's been kind of across political parties and across the sector as a whole there's been less of less talk about behavior in isolation, much more talk about behavior as mm. part of a wider picture of, of pupil mental health and well-being. And I think that's really important because it's all, you know, it's all very well and good to mm-hmm. have really strict 
um, kind of behavior codes and to have really clear practice within your school. And, you know, that's great. And consistency is good. Mm. And, and that's wonderful. Um, but, you know, kids go through a lot. They're, you know, they're people. Mm. They, bring, they bring their lives and their issues into the classroom with them. And, and I think what we've seen is that teachers often feel... Um, slightly at a loss knowing how to support pupils with these things. That's why um, the government has previously suggested um, or is encouraging schools to um, designate mental health leads mm. within, you know, mm. with, within their settings, um, which could potentially work quite well. Definitely talking about it mm. <laughs> um, is helpful, but it's, it's nice to see that we're talking about it yeah. that way. What also needs to happen is that any policy or any approach that um, the government or the DFE takes in the next few years needs to reflect the fact that behavior has to be a joined up holistic effort and it can't just be um, an emphasis on exclusions or more support for head teachers using their you know using yeah. their behavior powers in a certain way it has to you know mm. you have to treat kids like people right? yeah and it's it's interesting because obviously we've 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 seen a lot of um, research and and survey in the last couple of years around the um, impact that behavior has on teacher recruitment and retention yeah. and actually it being a a big thing that's that's driving people out of of the sector i guess it, there is um there is another mention of you know kind of behavior and and these issues further down the manifesto um where they actually refer to the word discipline um where they where the um the the line is actually we will back heads and teachers on discipline um and then they talk about this learning from 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 others other schools, um, and I guess there is there is also where they say they'll they'll back heads to use exclusions, so there is potentially a little bit of um, of a concern there about recognizing that yeah behavior is something that's part of a wider picture of how a child um, presents and develops and and learns at school, but where does this comment around backing teachers to use exclusions fit with some of the really positive moves we've seen around Timpson? Don't know. Well, yeah, it's like Kaylee said about like behavior being talked about in context, you know, with relation to mental health, like talking about behavior management strategies more broadly and the idea of exclusions without talking about like, without knowing what the, you know, forecasted 2020 guidance update is around exclusions following the Timpson review and what, extra support for alternative provision there's going to be it's really hard to say you know we'll back you on discipline and yeah. for you know use of exclusions if there's not going to be improvements around alternative provision because you just, that mm. system won't be able to sustain itself um so yeah at the moment um the new Ofsted framework has quite a lot of quite a lot of emphasis on behavior mm. um and Part of part of the reason that Ofsted has revamped its inspection reports is because they wanted to make it clearer for parents how schools manage behavior. And we know from talking to schools who have been inspected that behavior is a huge aspect mm. um, of the the questioning and investigation yeah. that inspectors do. Um, but at the moment, it's it's stick but no carrot. Mm. It feels a little mm. bit like without without the kind of the 
AP provision that you need in order to make an effective direction for a people mm. offsite to improve yeah. their behavior or to kind of run interventions or, you know, AP mm. schools and pupil referral units have teachers who are specially trained to deal with um, pupils who are struggling, for instance, with their yeah. um, mental health or their emotional kind of well-being. And so they can help teachers in mainstream settings develop their skills for dealing with these things as well. But at the mm. moment, because AP is stretched as thin it is, as mm. it is, yeah. you know, just like the rest of the sector, it's unclear how well that system is working. And so if the greater support for AP means more yeah. funding, more places and things like that, then, then great, you know, you may be onto something, but without, um, without a system there to, to catch mm to catch those kids if they are indeed excluded then you're not you're yeah. not achieving much well yeah again there is there is a little line here under um the heading that says we will create more great schools that says we will expand alternative provision schools for those who have been excluded a bit vague um a bit hard to uh measure and kind of keep a check on that but uh yeah it seems to be at least they've they've, they've recognized um the, the need there um, and we were just talking there about behavior and and you know supporting teacher recruitment and retention there um, so coming on to the section about supporting teachers um, so raising teachers salaries and and benefits um, I guess the most eye-catching part of that is the um, increase of new teacher salary to 30,000 pounds by 2022-23 and we are funding uh, in, um, increased uh, contributions to teachers pension scheme so that school leaders can focus as much of their resources as possible on the front line uh, by doing this we can attract the best teachers into the profession and make sure that our children have access to the best teaching all around the country sounds sounds positive I guess you know in in recent past uh teach pay has not gone over very seamlessly with our just no. before the summer holidays yeah. 2.75% increase mm. the only 0.75% of it being funded I I'm always wary of language like um like we're funding mm. this because of because of that exact mm. yeah. instance you know are you are you funding it fully yeah. or are you just funding it so you know if it, it kind of goes back to this um the conversation we were having earlier about general funding levels mm. um you know if if in real terms you're not um you know you're just taking schools back to where they are were you know mm. 10 years ago but then adding higher salaries or higher pension contributions etc on top of that yeah. in in reality you're not actually putting schools in a much better position unless what you're doing yeah. is promising to fund fully any increased pension contributions mm. um, and yeah i'm not sh i'm not sure i've seen maybe i've missed it enough information about exactly how this increasing the start the new teacher salary works in relation to all of the people who 
you know, whose pay would then necessarily be affected, who have already been in teaching for some time. So I can see why that might be attractive as a way of recruiting people and saying, and when you're a newly qualified teacher, you get £30,000 and that might bring you up to parity with other professions or, you know, whatever. But if the people who have been there two, three, four, five years are then immediately disgruntled, (laughs) does that help? Yeah, and do we... Do we know that, again, like I say this genuinely not knowing either way, but so if it's £30,000 starting salary by 2022-23, and this is part of a recruitment strategy, how that £30,000, I mean, you mentioned parity there, how that's going to match up to private sector graduate starting salaries? Because, I mean, the like recruitment targets have Mm. been missed year on year. Like there needs to be more than just an average recruitment round yeah. In 2022, 23, yeah. there needs to be like a pretty serious one. So that's going to need to look very good compared to what other yeah. salaries are looking like. Mm. And um, and uh, yeah, and as you say, it's it's one thing to bring people into the pr- profession, but we also know that middle leadership is where a crunch really yeah. happens, where mm. your workload goes through the roof. Because not only are you a class teacher, you're also a phase leader mm. or the English lead, or you know you have an additional responsibility, and you're thinking about your professional development in terms of moving up to senior leadership. Yeah. And, and it all kind of piles on in terms of workload. Um, is Are you gonna feel like what you're getting is is enough what are we you know what are we doing for those um you know for for those people in middle leadership mm-hmm. are we yeah. making are we making sure that we retain as well mm-hmm. as recruit yeah. uh, so that we don't have um you know we don't have a hollowing out mm-hmm. in the middle mm-hmm. and again the secondary school age population over the next like mm-hmm. five six years isn't just it's it's increasing exponentially though is like the 2008 the baby boom yeah. is is on its way yeah. they're all yeah. they're all about to enter secondary school and rear their ugly heads into puberty so like (laughs) we're gonna need a lot of teachers um brave ones yeah but as you say it's not just i guess yeah it's it's salaries and it's what else you do to support middle leaders there'll be other sort of uh employment yeah strategies used to try and keep people in the profession it it pay is important but there'll be things around flexible working and there'll Mm. be things like there'll be other things schools will need to look at to, to make sure that and they are able to deal with this and yeah. i think you know it, it it is never the prime motivation of people who are in the teaching profession yeah. how much they get paid but you can alienate and and cause people more trouble if you mm. don't do these things in a fully thought through way yeah well it's i mean it, it just Pay isn't pay might not yeah. be the motivator, mm. but um, but we know especially for things like STEM subjects where they've been mm. they've been trying for as long as I can remember to recruit mm. more people with with STEM backgrounds yeah. into teaching, and it doesn't seem like they've ever quite got there. And it's as you say, it's because you know if you've got a degree in physics or higher mm. maths, um, you know you could take a, you know. 30,000 pounds starting salary as a teacher or you can probably find unfortunately an investment bank who will pay yeah. you double that yeah. um, and you know it gets you mm. it gets you down it gets you further down the road mm. it makes you for, more financially mm. secure if you're young and you're looking to start a family and buy a house or you mm. know whatever it is um, so even if pay isn't isn't the motivator it is definitely something mm. that needs considering 
and not just motivator, but like, and you know, this might sound like a bit of a fluffy issue. There's also a question of what people deserve. Like it's yeah. a really yeah. demanding job. Yeah. Like there's an issue of fairness. Like we believe that teachers deserve a very competitive salary mm. because the job they do is incredibly important and difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. Um, so move, moving on um, to look at the section about great, more great schools. Mm. Um, so there's some kind of expected things about making every school a great school. Uh, continue to support innovation, like our successful math schools, uh, set up for the most gifted young physicists and mathematicians. I know there have not been too many of, of those, but um, uh, it's, it, yeah, support for innovation. As we mentioned before, expanding alternative provision schools, also deliver more school places for children with complex SEN needs. Um, and intervene in schools where there is entrenched underperformance. We will continue to ensure that parents can choose the school that best suits their children and best prepare them for the future. And we will continue to build more free schools. So um, got some sort of definite commitment there to more kind of free schools mm. and and kind of choice mm. and and variety um, there. Obviously, some positive um, um, something positive about more alternative provision and also potentially. Um, more uh, places for children with SEND, as we were saying there, in terms of the the funding and and management of that, of, you know, a continually growing population of children with um, increasingly complex mm. needs. Yeah. Some some long term planning is is required, um, for sure. Yeah, I think um, I I think the places uh, for pupils with SEND mm. is is great um i guess my question would or yeah my concern mm. would be that um places are great but yeah. if they're not funded in mm. a way that's adequate mm. um then you're not making much headway yeah. it's also probably worth saying that at the moment the way that that places in special schools are funded makes it incredibly difficult for those schools to manage their budgets. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we're thinking about expanding the number of places in special schools or in resource units in mm -hmm. mainstream schools mm -hmm. yeah. or whatever the case may be, we, you know, we need to make those places, as you say, viable in the mm -hmm. long term mm -hmm. and, and sustainable um, so that it's not just a, a patch, it's a, mm -hmm it's a real change yeah. and a meaningful one and and obviously we we there's an indication of more SEN funding for SEND in the in the very short term I think in the kind of first year or so um but nothing more in terms of yeah. finance or funding beyond that and I don't know if that will be because of another comprehensive spending review or budgets or whatever but you know yeah. I guess there's there's still a lot of campaigning to be done on, on that on that front. But Adam, let's talk about free schools. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like it's not surprising that the manifesto said we will create mm. more free schools because this is a policy that the Conservatives have had in place for a while. And mm. like, uh, so it's not a surprise that they're going to continue with this. I think where it's interesting is who opens the free school and what the programme looks like in the mm. next wave of mm. applications, because taken within the context of some of the other things we've talked about, like 
funding and where potentially more disadvantaged communities are going to be hit by mm. changes in funding. Um, and this is only based on some research, but research done by uh, Rebecca Allen and Rob Hyam uh, for the Institute of Education looked at like uh, the opening of free schools and how that affects different communities. And they don't tend to... They tend to basically entrench socioeconomic inequality with the exception of where they're opened by academy chains. Oh, okay. So if... And, like, that does seem to be the more common route. Um, they're the ones that are basically... Academies are good at opening free schools that reflect the sort of economic diversity of the area. Mm-hmm. So if more academies are in- encouraged to open free schools, that could be a good thing in a way of mitigating that. However, we know that academy chains need to be sponsors for existing maintained schools and small academy trusts that are looking to merge. So they can't... Like, there is a question mm. of capacity around academy yeah. chains as well. So I think, basically, it will just be interesting to see how the building more free schools thing works in practice and who does it, whether we'll see a sort of re-emergence of, like, parent groups and mm. local organisations encouraged to open free schools. And also where they are, I feel like, yes. um, particularly, as you say, analysis of existing um, free schools points to the to the fact that they're often in places where there is not there are not there's not a lack of good school places it's just about parent choice and other things um whereas you know and and potentially in some of the constituencies that have you know um come come over to the conservatives in the most recent Mm. wave some of those um would would be good locations um for free schools it's just a question of as you say how how that comes to pass Mm. exactly and the the like you know the the free schools that we've had the most time to sort of examine are the mm. early waves of it. Like yeah. that's a, like any sort of research is with a like significant enough sample size is skewed towards the early ones. So like you mm. know it's not to say that that's a pattern that will be fo- like you know the free mm. school opening program will learn from itself and yeah. you know be able to change courses sees fit. But obviously that's just a lot of assumptions being placed in the line. We will create more free schools. Mm. So I think it's yeah. like that yeah. that. That second half of that sentence is doing a lot of heavy yeah. lifting uh, for, <laughs> how, been for the various ways vague. in which <laughs> that could play out. So I think, yeah, that's just a, a one to keep an eye on. Um, yeah, and, um, and, and the final area on the manifesto is investment in arts, music and sport. Um, so obviously that there has been um, this marked kind of narrowing of the curriculum and obviously more of a focus on e back subjects etc so this seems to go some way towards saying actually um uh there's a commitment to having an arts arts premium uh for secondary schools to fund enriching activities for all pupils i guess the idea is that that will work in some way like the sports um premium at primary Potentially, Potentially. yeah, there's not much indication Mm. of how it will actually work. So the the other area is investment in primary school PE teaching to ensure it's being properly delivered. We want to do more to help schools make good use of their sports facilities and to promote physical literacy and competitive sport. But again, quite light on on the detail there of exactly what that looks like. Uh, so that may just be one to watch. Don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, the PE and sport premium does a bit of this already mm. because um, schools can already use, I mean, it's primary only, but schools can use that funding to do things like help develop their um, their PE teachers, you know, providing CPD or bringing in specialist activities and things like that. Um, so that feels quite more of the same. I mean, I do think it's interesting this emphasis on arts, music, and sport mm. alongside a kind of rich, what they're calling mm. a rich mm. academic curriculum. Um, the curriculum is obviously a big focus given the new Ofsted framework. And we know that in primary schools in mm. particular, there's been a, a, a big disconnect between the accountability measures mm. that focus very much on English and yeah. maths and this sort of broad and balanced curriculum that schools are supposed to be developing. And in, you know, in reality, what that's often meant is that subject leaders in primary schools aren't specialists in mm. things like history or science or geography mm. or, you know, music or art. Um, and that the curriculum has narrowed mm. a bit um, or, or a lot in some cases. But I think, you know, it's, it's nice to be putting this, you know, putting their money where their mouth is a bit and saying if we want a wide curriculum and we want access to the arts and, mm. and music and sport, we're not just telling schools yeah. to do it. We're going to give them the money to do it. But I think it probably slightly misses the wider point about teacher skills and development mm. and specialist knowledge across the sector. Yeah. Mm. And that as important as these things are, and they absolutely, um, you know, the the school where I was a governor had, you know, brought in this incredible music program that just reinvigorated the curriculum mm. in a way that was really inspiring and also created links with the more traditional academic subjects like maths mm. um, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily have expected. And, you know, to mention that the kids absolutely adored it was was just, yeah. mm. I mean, the obvious point. Um, and so, you know, these things are, you know, art, music, and sport is, is really important, mm. but there's a wider discussion, I think, to be had about supporting teachers to develop specialist knowledge yeah. and skills mm. across loads of different subjects, especially mm. in primary schools yeah. where you have to teach everything. Mm. Um, yeah. you, have to, you have to stand up in front of that class of kids and know everything <laughs> about everything, like yeah. some sort of yeah. miracle worker. And you do, wouldn't like, at secondary, maybe, like, uh, uh, this isn't based on anything, you know, maybe they'll fiddle with the EBAC accountability measures a bit. Like, they already changed it from, like, a sort of pass rate to an APS, and, like, maybe they will look at that and say, if that's a perverse incentive, then, you know, we can mm. look at changing that. Because the EBAC, as a measure, never really became the sort of, like, really strict thing that schools have to follow that yeah. I think it was originally intended. But, yeah, that doesn't answer that question at primary school as you say like what you do to sort of make the curriculum as as wide as it can be and include all of those yeah. non back things just the small subjects of music art and sport yeah all, all of culture yeah. throughout time <laughs> just those but, little but things. i think yeah, it does there is a real there is a real pressure at secondary with with results and league table and accountability working in the way that they do um to try and get every pupil to access you know qualifications at a significant you know at a high enough level and then be expected to do all mm. of these other things alongside is is going to remain attention so that was a quick uh 
canter through um, the manifesto. Um, worth mentioning, there was a quick kind of postscript to the manifesto um, that, that came out after that had been launched mm. with a commitment mm. to trial no-notice inspections and longer inspections. Ooh, what do we think about that? Uh, nothing controversial there. No, <laughs> no one ever really has any opinions about inspections, so I think we can just skip Everyone's over that one. Everyone's just fine with it. I think longer inspections... You, you might be able to make a reasonable case mm, for. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things that they, they did a similar thing with the sort of Section 8 mm. inspections where they used to be, quote unquote, short. They were mm. a day long rather yeah. than two. Um, and there seemed to be really positive feedback from the sector when Austin mm. consulted on making them longer before introducing this framework that they were saying, well, look, it's, it's, it's bad for us and it's bad for you. Yeah. We're rushing through. Yeah. We don't get to see everything in the way you want us to see it. Mm. You don't have the time to show us all of the wonderful things you're doing. Let's just make it longer. Mm. Um, and you could probably make a similar argument. And, you know, you do wonder whether some of the... Because this would be targeted at the largest mm. schools, right? Yeah. Would, would actually probably not find that too much of a burden, mm -hmm. especially if, as you know, what we've heard from the sector so far is that um, school leaders actually think that the conversations they're having with inspectors under this new framework yeah. are more constructive, more professional, more like a dialogue and less mm -hmm. like an interrogation. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can, you can see some appetite for that. Yeah. I think the no-notice inspections yeah. is a rather different beast. Yeah. I don't think anyone's going to be happy with that at all, including Ofsted. Yeah, yeah it, I mean, there's... Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I just... I, I think they've they've been asked to do this before. Mm. Um, I think, was it Michael Gove who asked... It was Michael Wilshaw at the time, mm. I think, to consider rolling out no-notice inspections in a more regular way. Mm. And the response was, no, mm. thanks, mm. but no thanks. Mm. Um it's a logistical nightmare. And I don't like that's sometimes used as a reason not to do something where, you know, if it's an important thing to do, you mm. figure out the logistics of it. But like, there's a capacity issue around Ofsted. Mm. If with the outstanding exemption going, yeah. there's going to be more inspections. Um, with, you know, longer inspections, they're going to take longer, you're going to mm. be more inspectors. Like, no notice inspections are really difficult yeah. to do. And you mentioned the short inspections thing. One of the reasons I think that was difficult, because I remember when they announced the 2015 framework and they said, we're yeah. introducing these one-day inspections for Section 8, you know, good school inspections. If during the course of the inspection, we find that there might be reasons that either this school is outstanding or requires improvement, yeah. we will bring in a team of inspectors on the second day and turn it into a full inspection. And like the way they described yeah. it, it's like, what, are they all going to be like circling the area yeah. in a van, <laughs> like ready to jump out if this SWAT needs to be team. converted? Like it's, you know, yeah. Like I think there are, there are issues around how like Ofsted's capacity to be able to do these things. And like another, it wasn't in the manifestos and, it was mentioned last term, well, this term, and sort of I heard it mentioned again at a conference last week, is the idea that Ofsted might need to start looking at a school's financial performance, both to, you yeah. know, contextualise it and, you know, because that's one of the things, especially in the academy sector, that comes up a lot around, like, the sort of issues of governance and finances. Yeah. Like, there needs to be a real focus on financial performance. And, again, like, that's, that's another thing Ofsted yeah. are going to be able to yeah. have to do. Like, you can't... You can't do everything. I know there was some extra money announced alongside the no-notice inspection mm, thing. Yeah. They did say we'd but also, give another 10 million. Mm. 
But also, Ofsted already has powers to conduct no-notice inspections yeah. when they feel like it's appropriate. Yeah. So they can already do it when there's a, when there's been a safeguarding concern mm-hmm. or a complaint about safeguarding or behavior. They can already do it where yeah. they run their risk assessment process and they think that there's a problem with mm-hmm. the quality of education. That you know they actually have pretty wide latitude, mm-hmm. and I think that the fact that they don't use it more yeah. regularly is speaks to the point that they don't really need to use it more regularly and And it's not like make it the rule Mm. would just be counterproductive Mm. yeah and and given that there was already the sort of feedback on the consultation process of you know schools don't want that on-site preparation before the inspection yeah you know like i think you 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 could have a guess at how this is going to go down it just does seem (laughs) a, a bit of an odd one but thought it was worth just just flagging that because it did get thrown out there at the kind of 11th 11th hour well you gotta try yeah so um that's our kind of canter through the through the manifesto um and some other announcements that were made in the election campaign and our attempts to kind of think about how they might might play out um a few things that we might speculate slightly more wildly on she says with number one being i think nick gibb will still be schools minister (laughs) seems likely till the end of time forever (laughs) um but maybe Gavin Williamson will keep his job. Maybe in this kind of trailed New Year reshuffle, he he may move around. Don't know. So that that might be one to 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 watch out for. Um, I think you know we we talked a little bit about new free schools. Um, some other areas that that you know people have been starting to speculate on are: will we see a push for further academisation? Particularly, as you remember now, the, 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 this trust has been set up for these um, schools no one wants, mm. um, attractively uh, named. Um, and, you know, perhaps the grammar schools might rear their, their heads again as a, as a potential. So maybe, maybe some, some, some more moves in kind of system change direction. Um, not heard a lot on early years. Um, but both of the uh, Labour Party and Lib Dems had quite a lot on on early years. So, I mean, may, maybe something on childcare in early mm. years. Don't don't know. Um, any any other issues where you think there, there might be some things um, going on that we haven't covered yet? The only thing I guess I can think on early years is just that if it all goes ahead as had been previously planned, I guess twenty twenty will be the official start of the reception baseline roll out because that was only a pilot for mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. academic year yeah. so i guess that's an early years thing but yeah whether there's anything else that we didn't already know about on the issue of sort of you know system change and academization like obviously it's very silly to make predictions because you just set yourself up to fail mm. but i'd be surprised if there was like a quick immediate rush mm. for full academization um like obviously after 2016 where it got rode back on quite Oof. quickly but as yeah, well like yeah. there is an issue of capacity like i don't mm. i think I think most people involved in that program one way or another, like in terms of government mm. level, like they'd rather see it done right and mm. done slowly. And like, they've yeah. realized that like, it's a pretty massive system mm. change. Like I think learn what you can from the high performing trusts now, but they've already said, you know, they'd like to see, you yeah. know, they'd like more capacity in the sector mm. to take on underperforming or, you know, relatively new schools. I just, I, I think it'd be weird for them to try and roll that yeah. out too quickly with everything else that's going on like it it could just be a much more unambitious approach Mm. which isn't to say that's not where they see it like much further down the line Mm. like um this government clearly does believe in 
the Academy's programme. I just mm. don't know. But again, I've just made a prediction, so I'm probably wrong. And uh, <laughs> I look forward to the fully academised system coming in January 2020. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say we are we are four days after after polling day, uh, really, recording this. So, uh, yeah, we could we could be wrong about a bunch of this stuff. But um, we, we've we, we've had a look through and, and had a go. Uh, so all I can say is thank you, um, Adam and, and Kaylee, for, for talking to us today um, and, and, and helping us think through uh, 2020 and potentially uh, beyond. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And just a final thank you for all your fantastic support this year. Uh, we have had over 9,000 downloads, which is completely brilliant, but we want to keep getting better. So please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions. And a Merry Christmas. <laughs>